littlest of ones who are going to be going back with Zoe. And so if you would like to accompany the two of them. <laughs> And I will say, despite my threat that we were going to have to rearrange seats, you guys have filled out the place nicely, so I'm going to allow you to stay where you are, which is, I know, Curtis had a window seat, and he was like, you know, kind of feeling this sort of airplane vibe going on. I got a good view of what's going on outside, Darren. The sermon gets a little long or boring. I've got a little bit of a distraction out the window. So I don't blame you. I understand. And so, guys... It's good to be together. Kids, thank you for being in with us. Just so you know, every time a month has five Sundays, we try to take that fifth Sunday and just sort of serve as a practical reminder for our young and for our old that we are a church comprised of families. We're not embarrassed about that. We love it. We love the fact that we are made up of a process that was handed off to us and that we're trying to hand off to others. The passage that we read at the morning, it's not just enough for us to be able to love the Lord, but it's a process that we want to pass on to our kids. And so we want to make life just seem normal and gospel-saturated. And so it's good that we can be together for church. So kids, thanks for joining us. Older folks, thanks for welcoming in our kids. Thanks for not looking at them if they make a little bit of noise. It's good to be together, but to welcome everyone, I do want to say I've got a slide here that I'm going to ask you a couple questions about. So let's take a look at this together. <laughs> Question one, who is this? And you have to be younger than, we'll say, 32 in order to answer this question. Who is this on the screen? Yep. That is Buzz Lightyear. Question number two, what movie does this scene come from? This one, that was, that was the, the simple question. We're moving up to the $500 question here, not that I'm handing out money. But, all right, Toy Story 2. Very good. And a question for Zachary. What point of Toy Story 2 does this scene come from? Do you remember? And does anybody else remember other than Zach? Because Zach is a Toy Story fan. And so I figured at least I would have somebody who would know this. But does anybody know what scene this comes in and why it's so significant? Zach. Okay, and who's they? Who is Buzz speaking to? Oh, very good. Okay, we got some help for Zach. These talking to the other toys. Zach, why didn't you know that? That seems like a pretty obvious answer to that question. He's talking to the dog, right? He's talking to Slinky. He's talking to Potato Head. And they're scared. They're going to cross the road. Why? Because there's one character who's not with them. Who's not with them at that scene? Woody, very good. I know exactly who that was over there. That was probably Christine. She just couldn't help herself. She had to answer that one. Guys, here's what's happening in this scene in Toy Story 2 so that we can kind of all get a sense of why this picture is important. It's not just because it's Memorial Day weekend. 
In fact, if you were watching the international version of this, you know what's behind uh, Buzz? It's a picture of a globe. Yeah, they, ch they changed it so that, you know, it wouldn't feel quite so American. But we watched the American version, and so this is the scene that was there. They're going to cross the road in order to go get Woody because Woody has been stolen by the chicken man. Now, if this description so far has made you realize, boy, I have to go watch Toy Story 2 when we get back home, <laughs> good. That's great. I'm, I'm glad. But what's unique about this moment is that the toys who don't want to go across the street because they figure they're going to get squished to go actually go and save Woody from the chicken man who is going to send him over to Tokyo or something like that. They need Buzz to give this rousing speech. And so he starts to give the speech and they put the American flag behind him and Buzz is inspiring them to go do what they're scared to do. And right at that same moment, then Buzz fades out and it transitions into the chicken man watching the American flag on TV because he's fallen asleep, and after that, he's eating Cheetos and all these other things. In other words, this scene is a transition between two different things that are going on at the same time. Remember when Mary read this passage for us, she said, I'm going to read these verses, and I'm going to read these verses, and there were some verses in the middle she skipped. What she skipped is an indication that Mark is doing something very much like the, the makers of the Toy Story movie. Mark is going to tell us one story, but in the middle of it, he's going to transition to something else that happens. And then he goes back to the original story. If you look in your bulletin, you see that what Jesus is going to do is he's going to heal the daughter of somebody who's important, but in the meantime, they're going to transition to somebody else who's almost the exact opposite of this important guy, Jairus. See, Jairus says, I need you to come and heal my daughter. He's so important. The leader of a synagogue, it seems like, oh, Jesus would have to do exactly what he says. And then somebody shows up on the scene who's the exact opposite. Not a man, but a woman. Not a respected man, but a woman who, for various reasons, would have been cast out of society for a long time. Not somebody who's coming with a bunch of servants, but somebody who nobody probably even knew was in the crowd at the first place. And I'm going to give you the, the ending of the story. Jesus heals both the important daughter and the unimportant woman. But then... There's a third scene. And it's the third scene that I'm most concerned about. And so this is why I want the rest of you to think, kids and adults, I want you to answer this question. You can do it either sort of in a foodie way or in a music way. What's your favorite song? Or what's your favorite food? Now, if Mike was up here, Mike clearly would be saying that his favorite song is We Don't Talk About Bruno, right? But that kind of illustrates my point. No matter what you would say is your favorite food, or no matter what you would say is your favorite song, if you got that food every day, every meal, for the rest of your life, you might be happy the first, second, or third meal, but after a while, you might be feeling like, wait, this is my favorite food, but it's become too familiar. I'm too used to it, and I'm kind of just bored with it. Or as much as Mike loves, we don't talk about Bruno. 
you hear it over and over and over. I have one of my kids, not to be named, tends to get a song in their head. And once they do, the rest of the family gets that song in their head because they loved a whistle. And so from sun up, whenever they've been thinking about this song, you know who I'm talking about, right, Josiah? Yeah, I had no idea who it is. Mr. Whistler over here gets a song in his head, and we all have the song in our heads. And as much as I like that song the first time I hear it, and I think, oh, I read, yeah, you, you were thinking about that. That's why you're thinking about that song. 30 minutes later, I'm like, Josiah, could you please go listen to something else and then come back and sing that for a while? <laughs> See, because the problem is that familiarity breeds contempt. People get bored. And no matter whether it's your favorite food, no matter whether it's your favorite song, or in the case of the folks we're going to meet in the third scene of our sermon today, even if it's your favorite person, sometimes familiarity becomes a problem. And this is why I'm glad the kids are in with us today, because we're trying to do something with our kids that the Bible says we should start to do when we're very young. But we realize there's an enemy that we face in trying to train kids from the early days. Is that we're going to say that Jesus matters more than anything else for the rest of your life. And that means that we're trying to get kids familiar with God. We're trying to get them familiar with Jesus without allowing familiarity to lead to boredom. And yet what we're going to see is a warning that kind of takes place that way. So essentially, we're going to be looking at three different scenes today. The scene of the important, the scene of the unimportant, and then the scene of the familiar. And when we get to that last scene, we're going to have a real theological problem. So, let's get started. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. You remember what had happened last week, right? There was a huge storm, and Jesus was asleep in the boat. And the disciples were scared, and Jesus stilled the storm. That was pretty cool. Before that, Jesus had been on the side of the sea teaching. And so now then, he's coming to the other side of the sea. And when he does, on ver at verse 22, this ruler of a synagogue, not just a member of a synagogue, which would make you respected, but one of the leaders of the synagogue came to Jesus, and he said, my little daughter, verse 23, is dying I need you to come to where she is and I need you to touch her because I've seen how you heal. You touch and people get healed. Now, the, the interesting thing that happens across the board is that the language that gets used for healing can also be the same language that's used for saving. And that's kind of helpful for us just right out of the gate because we, when we get sick, don't immediately come to church and ask for the, the leader of the church to pray for us. It's not a bad thing for us to do, but in the day in which we live, when we get sick, we go to a doctor. And so in one sense, we might not necessarily immediately be able to relate to these passages about healing until we realize that in some ways, what's going to be happening today in the, these people's lives, is a real metaphor for what has happened in our life and our relationship with God. We, threatened by death, 
We threaten by being outside the camp. We threaten by things that would take away our peace have met Jesus and things have changed for us. That's exactly what's going to happen when Jesus heals this unimportant woman. Because when we end verse 23, Jesus has essentially said, yes, I'll come with you. And so verse 24 says he went with them. But listen to the part that we skipped here. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him, verse 24. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had but was no better but rather grew worse. Now, Chen's don't worry. No doctor jokes at this point. All right? It is amazing, though, how physicians are actually portrayed in the middle of this. There have been a lot of people with a lot of training who have tried to help her, and it has not made things better. Instead, it's made things worse for her. And Mark is putting this together, not because he has anything against physicians. He's trying to put together the most dire situation that this woman could be painted in. In contrast to the ruler of the synagogue, she's not a man, she's a woman. That's one strike. In contrast to the ruler of the synagogue, if she were to try and approach the assembly of God's people, because of the fact that she'd been bleeding the way that she was, she wouldn't be welcomed. So for 12 years, over a decade, in contrast to a ruler who's invited and who gets to say what happens in the synagogue, she's never been allowed to be in God's presence or in the presence of God's people. This woman is unimportant in a way that everybody would acknowledge. Yes, she is very unimportant, and she is also without hope. She has no more money, and there's no more medical expertise that could help her. But, verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she believed what the ruler of the synagogue believes. If I could just touch Jesus, everything could be okay. That's why the leader came to him and said, I need you to come and I need you to touch my daughter. It's what she believed as well. Verse 28, she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now, when I was in college, I used to get nosebleeds a lot. I don't know why. Some of my kids have kind of inherited this, uh, this privilege. It's, it's annoying when that happens, isn't it? You've, you're bleeding from your nose where you're not supposed to be bleeding. And when you can't stop a bloody nose, it's pretty annoying. It can be dangerous. I remember talking with my friend once who was on heart medicine. And the heart medicine he was taking was thinning his blood and so he had a nosebleed, and you know how well I do with bloody stories and these kinds of things. And he was telling me a little bit about a nosebleed he had that was so hard to stop that they had to stick a balloon up into his nose and inflate it with water so it could pack some sort of a vein. While he's telling me this story, and I'm in his driveway, it's a hot day outside, but the heat had absolutely nothing to do with how I was doing. I was standing there next to my car while he's telling me the story, and I started to get a little bit faint. 
And he's telling me about how he could feel the bones of his skull kind of like pulling away from each other as this thing was inflating inside his head trying to stop his nosebleed. And I'm like, you've gone to some really drastic, you know, kind of solutions in order to... Dude, I... And so I just... I just leaned down like this because the story he's telling is starting to affect me pretty badly because when, you know, you're doing that kind of thing. And so I got into my car and I turned on the engine and I turned on the AC so that I could get some cool air blowing over top of me so that I didn't just literally pass out in this guy's driveway. And he knocks on the window. Are you okay? Like, yeah, I'm just having a little trouble with the nature of your story. He's like, okay, well, let me keep going. And I'm like, oh, Buddy, I need you to stop talking about your bloody nose. It's a bloody nose. If I get hiccups, everybody in the family knows that's when dad gets angry. Like, it's almost like my version of the Hulk. You wouldn't like me when I have hiccups. That's kind of the phrase that I would have. I don't like not being able to control something in my body that seems like it should just be normal. This should stop. And this woman is dealing with a situation that's compounded worse. That There's nothing that can be done for her. And all she's got is nothing that Jesus has ever really said, nothing that the Bible has ever really said. Maybe she's got some version of a superstitious belief about Jesus that he could just go around with his magic robes, like healing people. But ultimately, when she touches him, she is well. How important she is didn't matter. How, How significant she was didn't matter. Immediately, Mark's key word, right? Immediately, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed. Verse 30, though, as much as she might have wanted to sneak away, Jesus wants to draw attention to her. And so Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, you see this crowd dressing around you? And yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, verse 33, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. What a story that had to be. The whole truth could have been, I I touched you. But more than likely, the whole truth was, Master, you you don't know what the last 12 years of my life have been like. Everywhere I go, because of my condition, people say, stop and get back. The dirtiest parts of me seem like everybody else's business, and it's so hard for me to feel, one, clean ever, right with God, ever, welcomed into community, ever. That's what my life has been like for 12 years. That's, that's the whole truth. And I'm desperate. I've spent everything that I have. That's the whole truth. And it, here's the, the only truth is I needed you, and so I came and I touched you. And Jesus said, that's a good story. And remember who he's going to heal? He's going to heal the important daughter, but look at the way he describes her. He said to her, daughter, 
Your faith has made you well. Go in power and be healed. Actually, no. Jesus has already said that power went out. But what he grants to her is peace. Not just healing so that you're not bleeding anymore. Not just healing so that you're not hiccuping anymore. But healing so that you could be at peace once again. Now, I've never had a medical condition like this. You've probably never exactly had a medical condition quite like this. But haven't we needed God to touch us and to bring peace and power to us? And what made her well, according to Jesus' description of that moment, was her faith. She's well, and she was made well, and something did it. Theologically, we would step back, right? And we would say, Jesus did it. It was Jesus' power that did it. And that would be accurate. Probably from a big sweeping level, that would be accurate. But that's not the way that Jesus describes this moment. Jesus said the thing that made her well was that she had faith. You believed something about me and that connected you to power and that brought you peace. Now, faith's one of those words that always needs an object. We've removed the object. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. But Jesus sees that he's the object and said that faith works. That's the first scene. So let's go back to the one that Mary was reading. While he was still speaking, verse 35, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Why? Because Jesus has to touch to heal, right? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And we don't know this. I'm sort of inventing this. But if Jesus was going to use his hands to make a connection that it seems like Mark is making in his narrative, Jesus might have even said, do not fear, only believe, gesturing to the woman whose faith had just made her well. Do not fear, O great ruler, be like this woman. Don't be afraid and listen to your whole entourage. I just showed you what you need to do. You just need to believe. Here's your example. This woman. Now follow what she just showed you how to do. So he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Jesus isn't saying don't be sad. The funeral had started. The little girl had died. And when we go to funerals today, funerals are usually quiet. They're somber. People speak in hushed tones. That's not the way that funerals worked back then. Funerals had attention. 
lament was serious and grief was kind of a celebration of sorts. It's kind of odd. There were people in some cases who could be hired to cry and to wail and to grieve. And so the funeral has started and Jesus is interrupting the funeral. He says, why are you hosting this funeral? Why are you making this commotion? Why are you weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And if anyone were to interrupt a funeral this way and say up in front of the cos- in the front, in the casket, is a sleeping man, a sleeping woman, a sleeping little girl, and not someone who died, nobody would really give them that much attention. But Jesus understands death better than we do, better than they who are laughing at him in verse 40 do. But just like he doesn't let all the disciples come, just like sometimes after he heals people and tells them, I don't want you to say anything, here he even preempts the miracle by making sure that not everybody is in with him. He put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said, little girl, I say to you, arise. Sweet words. But it's the same thing you'd say to your kid when you wanted them to wake up. Okay, nap time's over. Wake up, little one. All right, little girl, time to get up. Morning started. We've got breakfast downstairs. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the little girl got up and began walking. And she was 12 years of age. How many times do we really get the age of the people that Jesus heals or interacts with? It's not often, is it? Sometimes we get a title, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we get a name, sometimes we don't. Very rarely do we get an age. But think about what happened 12 years ago before this day. One woman started to suffer, and another family rejoiced. 12 years ago before this day, one baby was born, and one woman's life began to deteriorate. Little did they know the paths they were on that were going to intersect 12 years later on this day where this little girl would come back to life and a woman whose life seemed to be evaporating before her was restored. For some reason, it seems important to Mark. Who doesn't often tell us how long things have been going on? Who doesn't often tell us the ages of those that he heals? But he wants to say, 12 years ago, 12 years ago, look at what happens in the exact same moment. For me, it's the Pixar thing. Here's what's happening here. Here's what's happening over here. We're going to bounce back between the stories because I want you to see how they're interconnected. And Mark is saying, from the important to the unimportant, one thing matters. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Believe what? 
This is what it means to be a Christian, church. You have before you the revelation of everything God says he did from the beginning of time till now. You have before you the description of the character of an invisible God. You have before you the description of why we were made, how we were made, and what we were made to do. You have before you the record of everyone's failings in some ways, because all of us can relate to Adam's failing. And then specific instances that we can also relate to how some of the most wicked and some of the best all failed. In the word of God, we have everything that we need to know about God, about history, about us, and about what God has done and what he's going to do. In other words, we have something to believe. And it doesn't matter how important you are. It doesn't matter how respected you are. It doesn't matter how old or young you are. If God says something, the question before people is, will we believe it? Jesus said that's what made the difference in the woman's life. Jesus said that's what Jairus was going to need whenever he was about to see what he was going to see. And when he saw it, verse 42, they were immediately overcome with amazement. It's time to talk. It's time to celebrate. We're going to turn this thing from a funeral that's loud into a celebration of a healing. And let's be loud. But then Jesus strictly charges them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. And chapter 6, verse 1 starts, and he went away from there. Do you know why Jesus saved you? Do you know why he gave you life? Do you know why he gave you power? Do you know why he brought you peace? If you answer that question because of your gyrus-like qualities, how important and respected you are, you fail this sermon. In fact, you fail Christianity 101. If you think God is paying attention to you because he's impressed by you, you haven't had faith in the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God, the impressive one, is impressed with the unimpressive. So much so that when people simply hear him and believe him, that is enough to motivate him. And if these two stories haven't backed up that point, listen to the third account that we get that starts in chapter 6. He went away from there, not staying there to be celebrated by everyone. But he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? Now it's possible the news of what Jesus had done preceded him. It's possible that the rumor mill kind of, you know, made its way and that people were aware. Jesus Our Jesus has been doing some impressive things everywhere else. And so when he finally comes home and he begins to teach, they're saying, where does this man get these things? But sadly, there are other questions that they ask as well. 
Verse 2, what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this a carpenter? The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? And they then took offense at him. Because all this talk about Jesus was something they just didn't want to do. Somehow the familiar had bred contempt. They knew Jesus. They knew where he came from. He wasn't some distant hero they could worship and not really have to know. They really knew him. And they were offended. And Jesus says, well, prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Jesus is quoting a couple different things. This isn't exactly a phrase. It's more of a summary of some things that have happened, primarily in the life of a guy, <coughs> excuse me, a guy named Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet that everybody listened to except for the people who were with him. He had a message that was sent to the people that had been taken away from his hometown, but the people in his hometown, they didn't listen to him. In fact, you might know the graduation verse that comes out of Jeremiah, right? I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. That's a good verse. It's just Jesus said that to the people that were exiled. Or sorry, Jeremiah said that to the people who were exiled. Did you know that Jeremiah also gives the opposite Jeremiah graduation verse? He also has a verse that says, I know the plans that I have for you to do you harm and to do bad things to you. Now, what's the difference? Why does God want to do good to some people and not do good to other people? It's because the people who got the anti-graduation verse were the people that lived in Jeremiah's hometown. And God had told Jeremiah, tell the people, stay here. Don't go to Egypt. Stay here. I need people in Jerusalem. Jeremiah, that's your message for the people of your hometown. Tell them to stick around. Yeah, everybody left. You got to stay. And they didn't. They decided they were going to go to Egypt anyway because Egypt looked better and so Jeremiah was told by God, you tell them, if they do this, I've got plans for you. You're not going to prosper in Egypt. Things are not going to go well for you. Now, that's a hard thing for Jeremiah, right? To be able to tell people in a distant land, hey, good news from God, and to have to tell the people that are living in his hometown, boy, God's giving you a warning, and because you're not listening to him, here's his judgment. No honor for Jeremiah in his hometown and Jesus is saying the same thing. Everybody, Capernaum and on, they know me and they revere me. But here in my hometown, no honor. And now here's the sticky, tricky theological conundrum. Jesus could do no mighty work there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them which is a big deal. 
He's just laid hands on a couple sick people and they got better. And we made a big deal of that. But here, the few people that he heals aren't Mark's main point. It's like, okay, that happened too. But here's the main thing I want you to see. He couldn't do something. Now, what do you feel when I say that? God can do anything. Nothing should limit God, but as much as I agree with that point, we have to listen to what Mark's saying. Now, Mary's our resident Greek scholar here. She's been taking some lessons in this stuff, and I talked to her before church. And I said, Mary, does this really say that Jesus could not do it? And she's like, yeah, that's, that's kind of what it means. Mark is telling us that because people didn't believe Jesus couldn't mighty work. Because people didn't have faith, Jesus didn't have power. And that's tough to reconcile. But it's really not, is it? Will Jesus save every single person at the end of time? Well, I don't know how exactly the end of time is going to go. But from every record we have in the Bible, there will be some who will choose not to give their lives over to God. Who will choose destruction rather than salvation. Why? Because God couldn't heal them? Well, think of it this way. Let's say I wanted to come over to the Chen's house and I wanted to have, uh, have a meal with them. And so I walked over and I, I knocked on the door and I said, hey, I, I'm here for dinner. And Mike said, I'm sorry, this is, we didn't invite you. Now, I could probably make my way into the house if I really wanted to. I could take my car and drive it up the front, and I could smash down the front door. I could go get some tools. I could break my way in. Could I get into the house? Probably. But because Mike said no, I can't get in. In other words, it wouldn't be a matter or a question of my physical raw power or ability to do it. It would be a question of my permission to really go in. I couldn't really go if Mike didn't give me permission to go. And it's kind of like that's what Mark is saying here. We have to hold it, hold it in tension. God can do anything, but Jesus can't do something. Through three accounts. Jesus can heal someone who's important. He can heal someone who's unimportant. But he can't heal someone who's unbelieving. In fact, verse 6 kind of drives that point home a little bit more. Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. And so he went about among the villages teaching. You see the contrast, right? Jesus marveled because of their unbelief versus who is it that actually got healed? It's the daughter whose faith had made him well. Or had made her well. Listen to this quote from a guy named Donald English. This is a commentary he wrote in uh, something called The Message of Mark. He's summarizing this point, looking back over everything that we've seen in the first five chapters, and he says it this way. The religious leaders 
were right to be led by their knowledge of history and prophecy from their past, but wrong to interpret it too narrowly, unwilling to be open to the new things God was doing now. Jesus' family were right in their concern for his health and reputation, but wrong to have forgotten the likely implications of his birth and its attendant circumstances. The disciples were right to be bold enough to follow him, but wrong not to see that he was the secret of everything God was doing to establish his kingdom. The evil spirits were right to perceive who he was and wrong not to bow down and worship. But those who came aware of their need were right to risk themselves by trusting him. They knew their need. They believed in his ability to meet that need. And had all the people in the gospel stories paid more attention to Jesus as the hero and focus of God's unique story, they all would have fared much better. See, here's what I love. 